Hello friends, how's it going? It's Matt. You're listening to episode 103 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's the show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Hope you're all doing all right out there. Nice one. So I'm just back from the Kendall Mountain Festival. Gotta say, really do enjoy that weekend. Great gathering of our little action sports and outdoor community. Here in the UK, big up to Steve Scott and his team for pulling the whole thing together each year. I was up there to do a little bit of work with for my day job, All Conditions Media, but also to record a couple of these here podcasts ahead of my trip to Portland. I took care of a forthcoming episode of Type 2, and I also caught, caught up with my old friend Phil Young to record this episode. Uh, so Phil has had one of those varied and fascinating careers that the UK action sports industry seems to throw up pretty frequently I'd say. He's familiar to people of a certain age as the presenter of a TV show called Bored Stupid which was what now looks like an unbelievable thing really. It was a credible primetime mid-90s TV show here in the UK completely dedicated to snowboarding. It was on Sunday afternoon if I remember rightly, hour or so. Yeah there's an argument that Bored Stupid helped really establish the industry here in the UK. And thank God somebody as immersed in the scene as Phil was there to steer it and really shape the perception of how snowboarding was perceived over here. I mean, even now, 20 years later, mainstream TV completely fails to convey the nuances and smartness of action sports culture. So for Phil, Normski and the rest, to pull it off as the did back then looks uh, incredibly prescient with every passing year I would say I've had a look on YouTube there's not a lot on there there's a couple of tiny clips which is a shame really because for the four seasons it ran it was a really brilliant bit of TV music huge part of it is which is something that Phil talks about in this conversation and then it gave him the platform to build the career that he's got now in the industry um, something he explains at typically entertaining length during our conversation. It took me a little while to persuade Phil to do this one. And when I asked him to do it, I had the rare treat of seeing him lost for words, which is something I don't think I've witnessed in over two decades of knowing him. Still, I kept chipping away. And I'm glad I did, because it's a really great conversation. It's about Phil's fascinating life and career in this bizarro little industry that we work in. But it's also about diversity, a topic that really doesn't get enough coverage out there, as you're going to hear. Phil's got opinions and principles, and he's not afraid to utter them, which makes, in my view, for a very revealing and uh, interesting conversation that ranges all over the place. We had a great time, as I always do when I interview old friends. So yeah, I'm biased, really, on stuff like this. They're always the most enjoyable ones for me because I don't have to prep. I can just roll up and chat to a mate, um, which is what I did. And there's a lot to get stuck into in this one. So have a listen. Let me know what you think. Here's me and Phil Young. Enjoy. Are you sure you've got the right Phil here? I think you should set the scene, Phil. I think you should say where we are. Well, I mean, I think people need to close their eyes, first of all, you know, calm themselves down and picture this. Uh, on the quite high up, actually, Matt. Fourth uh, floor. Fourth floor of a multi-storey car park in the back end of Kendall. The uh, Westmoreland Shopping Centre. Above a bus station yeah of all the locations we could have chosen to do this interview in it's not car. it's not how i visualized it really 
well, live in the moment. Yeah, I think I think it's you know the the amount of times I've done these interviews and not had anywhere to do them and have run around scrambling to try and find somewhere. It's probably too many, but we did it. We found somewhere. Yeah, how you doing? Great. I mean, um, I've got to thank you first of all, Matt, for suggesting that I come up to Kendall. Uh, I've been here a few times in my life for various different jobs and uh, probably for trips, walking trips or cycling or whatever. But I've never come to the Kendall Film Festival, which is what's going on right now. Um, and I've already, you know, I've done one day of it, drove up yesterday in the car up from London. I've done one day of it and actually been really surprised and actually quite blown away. It's great. By the depth of of what's happening here yeah you know, i thought it was just going to be you know let's bash out a few people climbing up mountains but it's so much more than that uh, and i was really surprised actually i've really been surprised i've only been to two or three things but some of the conversations that i've had with people and come of the some of the insights that i've uh picked up from randoms has been uh really quite interesting we met a guy yesterday i saw a guy speaking yesterday um someone i introduced you to actually in, that in, Ru- in the bar. ruben ruben cap or cap or something yeah filmmaker from canada from squamish squamish nice lad taller than me which is which is definitely <laughs> he unusual was, he, he was huge but he had some really interesting things to say well first of all what a fantastic photographer he, he's done this he's doing this he's done a short film uh and the film is about him trying to capture uh a particular shot uh, it's called nebula and the shot is of someone skiing, but with uh, the nebula, crab nebula galaxy right. Oh, right. Is in, that what it... in the background. Right. And, he's, and I've seen the shot and it's, I mean, I've no idea how he's, how he's got that. Right. He also was the person who did the shot of uh, the solar eclipse of a skier. Yeah, he showed me that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. And one of the things he was saying, I saw a a talk with him yesterday, and it's something that I'd never really considered before. And he was talking about action sports and adventure sports in general. He said that we are on the fourth wave of sports. And I don't know if you heard this concept No, I didn't didn't hear that. And uh, he said, you know, I said, is this something you'd figured out stoned in in a tent (laughs) somewhere (laughs) in in BC? He looked like he was familiar with the BC bud, that's for sure. Uh, and he said, no, he's, I mean, he's, he's quite a thinker, this guy. No, he's yeah, definitely a smart lad, for sure. And uh, he said uh, that as far as, let's call them sports in the short term, as far as sports concerned, that, that mankind, first of all, uh, were running uh, and lifting uh, and maybe throwing rocks or something like that yeah. maybe not even that just, yeah, yeah. just running and the, lifting the basic movements basic movement, jumping yeah. running uh, jumping and lifting so that's the phase one and then phase two was when people had tools yeah so maybe like uh, rocks yeah maybe uh, spears maybe a bow and arrow phase three is when people maybe had a little bit more leisure time so they were uh, he was talking about maybe team game yeah like football rugby football, you got the time to d- make the rules and... or, or some kind of Mongolian polo yeah or exactly with the gets sheep's, a bit more sheep's head arcane and yeah absolutely yeah and he's and like now we're at the, the fourth level of sports where we've got these manufactured instruments yeah like skateboards 
or bicycles or uh, you know, carabiners yeah. or things like that. And we actually really don't know what they mean yet. Yeah, well, that's really... And, and like, yeah, and we've created a culture around them that's really important. <laughs> yeah, but what, what purpose do they serve? Yeah. You know? And all these other sports, the other three waves of sports, have served some kind of purpose, yeah. generally to, to, to kill animals or to... Uh, after a day in the fields to be able to socialise through come, some kind of physical activity. Sure. But now, I guess the fourth way is it's just, it's just pure recreation. Yeah. And let's... Ever uh, more elaborate means of recreation, Yeah, basically. like you say, creating some culture around around what? Climbing a mountain just because there's a mountain there. And uh, if, if you talk to people in Tibet or, you know, in Africa or some of these places, uh, talking about climbing a mountain, they're like, well, why, why do you want to climb? Yeah, that? why would you do that? Super high. Yeah. You know, and it's probably cold and there's no food up there. Yeah. So what are you talking about? Well, it's like when um, the first climbers went to the, the Alps, which were tended to be rich tourists, basically. It was like, like local people, like yep. the first people to climb Mont Blanc were local people, but generally the advent of mountaineering and tourism and people coming to the mountains and the locals were the same. They were like, why, why would you do that? Like they just ignored the mountains. They just saw them as like a sort of dangerous obviously forbidden place didn't really help you didn't give you any more food it was just like you went up there you probably died like yeah. why why would you come and do that voluntarily and and now we've got urethane wheels yeah to allow us to to go faster so that we can hit a, hit a piece of pool coping well and the concepts of style as well you know what if you get into it like the idea that there's actually which seems to be universal as well which is funny isn't it because that kind of obviously there's something deeper going on aesthetically yeah. that people are recognizing but the but the, the, that when you build that in as well like well that's better than that because of this body position and and who makes those rules i mean i guess there's a certain aesthetic around that that's something that's more pleasing to the eye you know like like ballet or, or you know some other kind of uh, body form yeah i mean it must that. be a universal thing i mean stella sam back back have you said yeah. interviewed him on here and he was like well it's body language isn't it you know, like that's that's what style is, and that's why people respond to it because they are recognizing that somebody's got pleasing body language. Yeah, but that's so subjective anyway. Yeah, completely. Think, you know, what one one man's like, you know, beautiful air is another man's stinker. Yeah. You know. Well, Alex Nose I interviewed last week. Perfect. Well, there you go. Case in point. You know. You know? So uh, to the point. Yeah, I was. I've been pleasantly surprised well it's one of the brilliant things about this event like you 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 know in the bar you meet people like that probably never see them again but people who've got a very interesting perspective yeah and there was and there's a 10k going on now which is why we're we're sitting in the car and we couldn't go to yeah we had an interview spot but yeah we and and, uh, we've noticed that neither of us are doing the 10k (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 i don't i'm not i just don't like running I've, I've basically I'm late to the game on, on running um, I enjoy I don't like running on tarmac to be honest uh, as you missing, know I've you, got a, you, you're missing a trick today then well am I uh, I've, I've, as you know I've got a slightly gammy foot yeah I have done for a while so pounding pavements is not a not a great move for me because no. I feel it for the next two or three days and can't walk. But I just find it mind-numbingly boring, well, basically. But then I like swimming, which people find mind-numbingly boring. So there we go. Swings and roundabouts. Absolutely. But um, I'm looking forward for tonight. There's uh, a snow snow fest or something. Snow night. Snow night. Yeah. Uh, to see what's 
what's on offer. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, so, but you've come up here with a bit of an agenda this year. Yeah, we've been talking about this a, a little bit last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's uh, come as a surprise to me, to be honest with you. You know, being involved in kind of the outdoors uh, culture for most of my life, really. And I, maybe, maybe I talk about that first of all yeah. before I get to. Uh, why I'm actually up here. Yeah, because you're from London, right? I was born in Enfield, um, grew up in North London, and then then in Essex, uh, which is a strange part of the world. You know, Essex gets a bad rep. And actually, I was only in Essex for probably six years, so I, I, I didn't live there for that long, but some seminal years in Essex. And that's, I guess, where I discovered... <clears throat> skateboarding yeah I'd been skiing since I was very lucky actually I was brought up by my uh, primarily by my grandparents my mother was very young when she had me but I was, so I was brought up by my grandparents and you know they were very keen as an only child that you know go out there and see everything right in the world you know chuck enough stuff at him yeah and see what sticks right so I was sent out to I think it was Ski Club of Great Britain right okay as a 9 or 10 year old well that's pretty at the time, forward thinking. Yeah, and I was, you know, the only black kid. Yeah, there. Gonna, you know, obviously it's not something that, again, which is something we'll we'll get to yeah. that you, most people, you, you're quite lucky to get that in. I mean, even me as a white kid growing up in Manchester, like, because I ended up getting sent on a ski trip as well through school, and even that was kind of weird, you know. Really, it's not something that everyone did. No, I just to- so thrown into it. In fact, the only person that I, do you know, Andy Silver. Do you remember Andy Silver? Yeah, I do remember Andy Silver. A snowboarder, really good snowboarder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got into Speedway. He was a Speedway yeah. champion. The last I heard of it, he was he was a male porn star. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Wow. Uh, yeah, he he was one of the kids. Jesus, who, do you think that was going <laughs> to... No, well, Ten minutes in, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> he he was one of the guys that I remember, you know, as a, as a ten-year-old. He was a good snowboarder, wasn't he? He was really good snowboarder. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, so so he was there. So I bumped into him later on in life. But going there at nine or ten years old, right? You know, by myself, thrown into the mountains for ten days, sure. every year, gave me a love right. for for the outdoors. And it's something that otherwise, living where I, I was living at the time, I would never have. Right. And I think it's so important that uh, in those seminal years, in those, you know, from. 10 to 16 uh, that young people have get the opportunity yeah. to engage with the outdoor for, for a host of reasons. You know, so I was, I was lucky enough uh, to get into, into skiing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, eventually got into, got into skateboarding again. I was in skateboarding as a, as a you know, as a young child uh, in the late seventies. Um, get the plastic deck sort of thing a lotus yeah. kind of thing until it got run over right I think in Bournemouth uh, when I was there with my grandfather and at, at college met up with uh, Darren Robinson right yeah we were talking about this last night and I didn't mutual friend Darren who's been involved in the industry for you know day dot and I, I didn't actually realise you went that far back with him yeah well we I met him um, when we were in college we were doing a sports course together he was he was a great BMXer, right. part of the Harrow team back in the days, you know, front cover right. and what have See, you. I didn't know that either. <clears throat> Explains and, a lot. And he turned up uh, to college. We were doing a sports course 
he turned up to college on a skateboard. Right. And I went, oh my God. Yeah, that's yeah. a bit like when uh, I met Chris, Chris Moran, another mutual friend of ours. He turned up at our college with a skateboard and a BMX. Everyone called him American Kid. Because <laughs> <laughs> again, in Manchester, 90, 1990, 1991, you know, Rocking up with a baseball cap on and a skateboard was quite a forward-thinking yeah, move. Well, think think about Harlow Town. Yeah, exactly. In, in, in Essex. Yeah. You know, it's not a place you really want to be. Yeah. On on a skate. Well, they've got a great skate park there now, but it's it's kind of a bit rough around the edges. A new town, and this kid turned up with a skateboard, and I was like, made a beeline to him. I was like, you know, what's going on? Yeah. What's what's all this about? And he was working at a, a shop called Phase Seven in Wartham Cross, which is around the corner from where I used to go to primary school uh, randomly enough and I went uh, I was like oh yeah I'd love to, love to come in and see this shop and see a bit more about this skateboarding thing and went into the store and I mean it's a store you've heard a million times yeah. I'm sure went to the store saw all these colourful skateboards hanging up on the wall with Future Primitive one of the old Bones Brigade videos playing and I think it was Tommy Guerrero skating around somewhere in the Mexican border or so Tijuana or somewhere like that doing these ollies and I was like what on earth is this so I think I bought one right there and then and uh, totally changed my perception on on you know how I view the environment you know so got into skateboarding and then that year um I think we were both we were, we were doing a part-time job at Do It All. And for, and for those who, who, who don't know, it's like a and q yeah. type thing, like hardware store. Can I have that advert in my head for a Yeah, you know? how to do it. No, yeah. it's not. I'm not going to give you that. <laughs> I'm not going to give you that earworm. But um, well, there was a it was a school, college trip, a ski trip. And we're like, yeah, we're all in. Yes. Yeah. But thought, you know, we're, we're skateboarders and this new thing, snowboarding. Had happened. Right. Darren had gone to a trade show because he was working for Phase Seven, which is also a distribution company, and he'd come back with this magazine, this French magazine, and it had people doing this surfing on snow. Yeah. And we're like, we gotta give this a go, yeah. surely. So we all nipped a bunch of wood out the back of Do It All. Right. You know. <laughs> I, I have heard these stories before, but this is a good one. Oh yeah. <laughs> Got all these eight literally bits, bits of wood. Eight befores. <laughs> Out, out, out the back of do it all. Classic. Uh, we got this angle beading, uh, which you put on the side of shelves or something like that. We used that for rails. We'd seen a picture of a Burton Cruiser. Right. Like a Burton Cruiser 165. Seen a picture of it. Right. And thought, well, this is it. This is this is the snowboard. So we copied copied that. But the, the wood wasn't really quite long enough, so it's two bits of wood joined together. One was a nose. Right. It was the riding bit. We cut a fin in the middle, so there's a little slot for a fin, because I used to have fins, yeah, yeah. the old ones, one in the middle, so it's like a keel, and then two at the back that were like, yeah, like, like fins. Yeah. Uh, we varnished the bottom with some boat varnish type thing. In fact, to be fair, we spent more time on the graphics <laughs> and the varnish than we did on the actual structure right. of this thing. Well, it's important. Absolutely. And then I had a, a pair of old roller skates that I took the boots from the roller skates, or the outside of the boots and roller skates or something, and, and screwed them in. Wow. And then had some ski inners that I used, you know, just to, right. the, for the rest of the boot. Yeah. So we had gone to 
uh, ski trip was to Cool Mayer. So it was me, uh, Darren, and uh, a friend of ours called Cy Shoyler, who lives in Australia now, a great skateboarder. Uh, and we thought, well, how do we do this? And we made a, a collective decision that the way to do it is to take the top ticket uh, <laughs> up to Cool Mayer. Uh, you know, it had been dumping to go to the very top of the mountain as far as we could get, so like 3,000 metres or something like that. No, I, I even know the lift. Yeah, strap on. It's like that proper old school bucket Absolutely. lift thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So the three Jesus. of us went up the top that's there. Quite a, that's quite a, a mental image. Oh, it was ridiculous. Right. It was ridiculous. Uh, there's, there's three of us and, and the rest of this cable car full of like hardcore skiers. Who were like, what the fuck are this who, lot who, doing? Who were these 16-year-old kids <laughs> yeah. with these planks of wood, essentially? Uh, that quite clearly weren't fit for purpose. <laughs> Going got, up to this top, he's got roller skates on. <laughs> roller skate. <laughs> still picture though. I see if I can dig out the picture. Well, I was just it. thinking when you were saying that there's 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 something to be said for a feature on original snowboard CDT projects because everyone's yeah. got one of these stories. I remember when we got into it. Um, we did a trip. I can't even remember. I went to Dry Slope Comp in Stoke or whatever, and the boards all flew off the roof. I think it was like Chris was around yeah. Ste, and then Drew, our mate, um, CDT, you know, did designed the the snowboard roof rack. Yeah, you know, in 1990 or whatever. Everyone's got that tail, haven't yeah, they? Everyone's got it. Yeah. However, not everyone got to the top of this. Not everyone this went lift. to call my ear. And, and 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 then <laughs> as they were putting their board on actually dropped their board right and saw it flying down the mountain <laughs> really <laughs> that was me yeah right so i was like what there's my board wow. the other two on the floor laughing right it was a powder day so i was running down this mountain trying to catch up with this bed kind of gone jesus so I, I got it you know 20 minutes later as i'd waded through this snow, got it put it on by the time we got to the bottom of the mountain we could pretty much snowboard right you know even though one of the roller skate boots came off. Right. <laughs> so I was <laughs> riding with just one foot in uh, on, on the board, but we could pretty much do it. And um, I came back from that holiday thinking, yeah. Right. This this is it. You know, I'm I'm, I'm all in on this game. Right. And Balter, there was a, I was watching, uh, I was reading RAD, uh, the skateboard magazine. Yeah. Uh, and they had, used to have classified ads in the back. And I saw... Burton Cruiser for sale. Right. Uh, the I phoned him up. I was like, "How much do you want?" Right. I'm, price. Said, I'm coming. Uh, and it was owned by Martin Drayton. Well, I mean, it was that small, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, all oh, right, okay. So, so I bought Martin Drayton's board. Right. And then that next season, went snowboarding properly. Yeah. In inverted commas, I guess. But there was no, no one to teach us. No one. Knew what we were doing. When, when would this have been? Late eighties. Late eighties. Right. Yeah. Would okay. Eighty seven. Right. Perhaps. You know. I, I, I don't really know. So, and but it was early. It was early days. Um, so what? You, how old were you? Been sixteen, seventeen, right. something like that. Okay. Eighteen. You know, there was, but there was no one snowboarding. So it, was, it wasn't till the year after. I think there was a just ski trip. Right. Uh, that had, I think. Uh, Ian Cocking was on there uh, Sang Tang was on there uh, maybe Johnny Barr right. was there uh, very very early days yeah you know 
I think there was about 30 people. Right. And it was it was the snowball community. That was it. In the UK. Yeah. That, that was it. And, you know, I fell in love with it, fell in love with snowboarding because we had found this uh this small community in this small club if you like um of people that did this sport that no one else knew about yeah so it was a it was it was a club it was like it was like going into a record shop and finding a white label you know and it was a it was a it's a track that was so good that you couldn't believe that no one else had heard about it but i guess like all those songs all of a sudden, you know, you start hearing them on on a radio yeah. play, you know, or in the club. Yeah, well, it's your thing, isn't it? It's your little secret. That's exactly big, big part of why at that age it's so appealing, isn't it? Yeah, especially back then when it was genuinely like a subculture that that just didn't have a profile, did it? So, and it's great to see how snowboarding has has developed over the over the years. You know, has it has its ups and downs. You know, I know various times like the olympics you know everyone was like up in arms about that you know, as they are about skateboarding yeah at the moment and climbing yeah. chatting to somebody about about climbing last night and yeah. they were but, t- telling me it's all same things happening it's imploding and yeah, yeah but you know snowboarding seems to have, you know it's not it, it isn't that small club anymore and i think people need to realize that it's never good you know things develop things move on but you can still have your own little club you can still do it in the way that you did it before but the secret's out. Yeah. And you can't, you know, you can't feel bad that other people have got the, the joy and pleasure that no. you have out of it just because they've accessed it in a different way to you. Well, there's two things, isn't there? There's the act of it, which is personal, and then there's the industry, which is like the, the debate. Like, yeah. And the, they're both very separate things. I mean, you can happily go snowboarding and never give a shit about any of that. And it's not going to make any difference to your enjoyment of it, is it? No. Yeah. basically and that that's the same as it was for you in Cormier as it presumably will be next time you go snowboarding that's that same thing is still there isn't it yeah although I don't leave the ground as much <laughs> well no yeah. that's one of the great things about getting old though isn't it when you're when you like I actually don't give a shit about going near the fun park anymore yeah. or uh, leaving the ground last, it's last really time, nice snow last time I went snowboarding um, with Al Green who was in partnership with Dan, Dan Robinson uh, we would we were just hiking yeah, we spent most of the day. We, we would look at a mountain or look at a place. We'd take the lift system to get us the access point, and we'd just hike for two, three hours and get that run down to a refuge, whatever. Have a bite to eat, have a couple of beers, ride back down, and that was our day. Yeah, and it was enough. It was great. It was rad, you know. You know, just challenging yourself in a different way. Yeah, which I think is important. You know. To progress and you progress as you get older in different ways yeah you know but progression isn't necessarily learning the new trick no it's about tackling perhaps a mountain in a different way or looking at snow in a different way or finding yeah or lines that's the great in, things about it in, in a more considered yeah potentially way i enjoy it more now than than i ever have i think yeah which was, is which is a really nice thing isn't it you know yeah. to, to realize as you as you get older so you you've obviously ended up working you know we've known each other a long time and basically carved out pretty weird careers you know in this industry um and you you know you were somebody when i first got into it was already had that really you, know, you already had like a job in the industry so when did that start happening well i'm asked quite often 
what my job is. And, and <laughs> or I, by your kids. I, you know, I, I still don't really know. Yeah. Uh, I, I always say I fuck around for a living. Yeah, well, I've I've made a, a point of, you know, quite early on in my life uh, saying, well, if you're going to have to work for money to be able to live, which I have to, you know, I need to, I'm not fortunate enough to have a, an endowment, not an endowment, whatever. The, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah a trust fund uh, or anything or anything like that so I've, I've got to work you know if i don't get up in the morning and, and work i'm left homeless yeah I can't, I can't feed the kids i've got to go up and work but i've always thought if you're going to work you might as well work at something that you enjoy doing you know i've never really understood why someone would work at the same job for 20 years and just say i hate my job well why, it's, it's i mean circumstance puts you in that position sometimes but you know, I always think, you know, if you hate it that much, find something that you love doing, do it enough, and somewhere down the line, someone will probably pay you to do it. Yeah, but that's there's a, there's a certain fearlessness to that approach, which I don't think comes that easily to... to you know, look, yeah, but a lot of people like the security of... Of, of course, and I'd get, I'd get that. I'd yeah, get that, but know. you always had that then. You were always, like, quite, quite sort of... Once again, I was, a, you know, I was only child... Uh, mixed race person uh brought up in a fairly white environment so it's always been a case where if i've wanted to get something i've had to go and get it yeah myself because no one was really offering me much yeah so i had to kind of like well phil if you really want to go and do this you know just go out and get it you know and it might you might have to struggle to get it but if you're really keen to it you don't know what happens you know someone once told me you know go out shaking trees looking for apples shake enough trees you might not get an apple you might get an orange you know and actually you might find you love oranges you know uh the point is the shaking the shaking yeah exactly so go out and and shake a bit so i um you know i was in i was in a job where i was like what am i doing what was that uh i was working in the city i see i did not know that i worked in the city after college uh I'd, I'd go to work right. in a suit. Yeah. Uh, Fucking hell. With, That's with, so funny. With a skateboard under my arm. Uh, you know, do whatever that nine to five is. Go to the South Bank, get changed. Right. And go skating. Right. And then go and then go home. You know, and I did that for a year, two years or something like that. And right. Like, You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. What's this all about? So kind of left went traveling went to australia uh skateboarding came back uh worked for a little bit and then it's quite quite an interesting story about how i ended up where where i did i was um going to um the european skateboarding championships in radlands Right, Chris Ince's like the, the the legendary one. Yeah, like yeah. the penny the penny one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I was and I was I was working there. I was doing, I was a marshal or right. or, or something. You know, it's like Chris. You know, I want to come. Yeah, yeah. Do that. It's like I'd take some photos. Like yeah, yeah, just be a marshal. And um, I was skateboarding. I skateboarded in Cambridge, and on the Friday, I think, uh, met this kid. Uh, who was who was skating this mini ramp? Right, uh, Nick Hamilton, uh, right, <laughs> the photographer. Nick yeah, Hamilton. yeah. He was he was just a young young kid. Jesus Christ! But he was a little shit. Only <laughs> <I mean, skate, laughs> joking, Nick. 
We're skating this mini ramp. Uh, and I said, oh, what, what are you doing tomorrow, Nick? He's like, oh, nothing. I'm just here visiting whatever. Right. Friends. I was like, look, I'm going to Radlands. Jump in. We'll go together. Uh, and I'll take you up there. Right. So me and Nick, that's how I sort of met Nick. Right. So we ended up in the car was breaking down. So he's pushing the car out of the garage. And yeah. All this kind of stuff. But when I was there, I met in the, in the bar... I met um, a guy called Don Bostic, who was running World Cup skateboarding. Yeah, he was a proper industry name, wasn't he, yeah. back then? And yeah, and I was, I was just drinking at a bar with him. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, what's going on? He's like, oh, yeah, doing this. Also manager of this snowboard resort uh, called Donna Summit in, I don't know, Utah or something. Tahoe, isn't it? Tahoe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah, it sounds great. He's like, oh, yeah, come over. You know, I was like, right. I don't think he realised when he said that I'd I'd you actually would I was coming over <laughs> yeah you know it wasn't it wasn't a case of uh, yeah yeah Don Bostic you know I met this guy it's like okay I'll see you this winter right and uh, kind of uh, the end of the summer came saved up some money quit whatever job I was doing yeah him up, Don I'm on my way I see you like on Friday it's like what it's like yeah, yeah I'm coming like, oh okay. Got a ticket, flew over to uh, Minneapolis, got there, and they're like, you ain't coming in the country. Right. You're not coming in. So, you know, I had dreadlocks and stuff at yeah. the time. I probably didn't look, you know, fit for purpose, Yeah. to be fair. And they phoned Don up, like, who's this guy? So he's going to stay with you. He's like, oh, yeah, Phil, he's going to, it's cool. He's like, is he going to work there? He's like, yeah, yeah, he's going to do some work. That was it. Yeah. yeah you ain't coming in, man. No, you're not. No. <laughs> so I was kicked back out. Uh, from the States. So I thought, oh my God, all, all my friends at home, I told them I'm out to make my fortune in America, you know, to go snowboarding. Two days later, I'm back. So I laid low. It's like, okay, what do I do? So I phoned up uh, some people. I phoned up Johnny Barr, uh, Stentiford, and they're all over in Chamonix. So I thought, well, you know, has anyone got any floor space or something like that? So I spent the season in Chamonix. Two days later, I jumped on a bus, went over to Chamonix, and... Um, Met some guys there, you know, it was a great season. Yeah. Yeah, but ended up doing some kind of magazine there, a magazine called Storm, which lasted about. Yeah, three, I remember, I, I remember, I remember buying it. I remember buying Storm. <laughs> you, you, I yeah, did. you were the guy. I did. I, no, honestly, I remember I was at, I was in, I'd just moved to Sheffield, I was 18. And, uh, you know, it was like back then, if you saw anything that had skateboarding or snowboarding, yeah. you just bought it, didn't you? And it was in my local news agent. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know actually ever went I mean we do I was playing at it some other guy was publishing he said oh do you want to do a magazine like, yeah, yeah yeah so I bought it magazine. yeah oh, well done yeah yeah and and thank you and, and then I put two and two together afterwards when we met that it was you that had done it um, so right so that was yeah like in the classic style of back in the day it's like oh you look like you could do that you know yeah. do you want to do that do you want to do a magazine give it a bash yeah have, it, have a go at that but and then what we tried to do once the magazine was out once I was back home uh, in London was uh, just try and get it out to a bit of like door to door PR. Yeah. Um, and that year or the season before, there'd been a TV pilot, one show with Normski doing a TV show. Yeah. So I thought, oh, Lord stupid, Lord obviously. Stupid. I reckon a lot of people listening to this will, will obviously be. And and I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to get a bit of PR. It's going to the magazine, going to the production company and say, hey, look, we're doing some magazine. Right. Want to give us a mention, you know, not knowing what we're doing. Right. And the producers there said, oh, right, okay. 
do you know anything about snowboarding? I was like, well, you know, go out snowboarding, just come back from here, I know a few of the people. And they said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, nothing, I'm on the dole. <laughs> you know. So that's how that happened? I'll clean your gutters if, yeah. if you want. And they said, oh, do you want to come and interview a couple of people? Right. And I think it was James Stenterford. Like, do you want to go and interview James? We've got this guy that we want to interview. His name's James Stenford. I was like, yeah, I know him. Just, yeah. Just been with him. Yeah. Um, over in Chamonix. So uh, they said, yeah, okay. So I, I, I did this interview with him. And they said, well, what are you, what are you doing for the weekend? I said, nothing. Uh, want to go to Switzerland? So I thought, okay. So I went to Switzerland. We drove to Switzerland with the uh, assistant producer. And I'm like, why am, why am I here? Right. And he said, I don't really know. I don't really know what I'm here for. I, this is an assistant producer, a good friend of mine, Simon Bissett. And it turns out that I was a presenter on the show. All, they were like, it'll all, do. All of a sudden. Yeah. You know. Uh, Brother Phil. Brother, Brother, Brother Phil, Phil was born. Yeah. And, and, and the year after... Um, Norm Skill, Norman Anderson, uh, who I saw the other week, actually, a great photographer, uh, for whatever reason, wasn't doing it anymore. Right. You know, uh, I don't know what the story was. So it was me. So I was pre presenting this TV show about snowboarding. Yeah. Out of the blue. Which uh, was like Channel 4 Sunday afternoons, was it? It was massive. Yeah, it was massive. Yeah, it was yeah. like two million people yeah, it was, watching I it. I mean, when you think back, it's such a kind of random thing really because and all our mutual friends were on it weren't they so, so that kind it of, was for the crew yeah basically every everybody's career's got a boost yeah. i mean it's basically what set everybody up as i'm using inverted commas pro snowboarders yeah. really wasn't it because obviously that's a massive platform and you, you got to see some like amazing geese you went to like interview oh. craig kelly didn't you and, oh in a in a in a, in a, in a, in a jacuzzi well I went heliboarding for a week in uh, BC a place called Tyax Lodge which is about what four hours drive north of Whistler yeah I went heliboarding for a week with Craig Kelly I remember I mean, that one and you interviewed him in a jacuzzi am I right I have no idea yeah. so so many things yeah. came out of that so yeah Craig Kelly um, Alaska I uh, went to Alaska uh, oh man there's so many stories from there the being forcibly uh, fed hydroponic weed <laughs> by by this uh, Eskimo, Dale Brower, uh, who lived in a town called Barrow, which is the most northerly town in Alaska, 500 miles inside the Arctic Circle. Uh, he was telling me stories about whale hunting. He had a pair of mittens. I was like, they're heavy-duty mittens. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's polar bear. <laughs> I'm like, what? It's like, yeah, it's polar bear. Me and my uncle shot it last season. It was prowling around the village. We had to get rid of it, but I made some cool mittens right. out of it. This so, is why you're on the hydroponic weed. <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, have you, have you been to Alaska? No, I've not. It's incredible. We uh, met this one guy. Uh, he, I don't know if he still exists, but there's a snowboard brand at the time called AK Bombers. They made nothing under two meters. <laughs> nothing under two meters. Yeah, that was the era of like the Doughboy Shredder on it. It was like, oh, and yeah. this, this, this guy, he, they used to have That's an, fucking hilarious, a, a, isn't it? an event called uh, King of the Mountain. King of the Hill. King of the Hill. Ed Lee went and did it, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. They yeah. knew Ed Lee. Yeah, oh, well, sure. who, who doesn't? <laughs> um, and he, he, he uh, every year with top, top 10, no one had heard of him outside 
outside Alaska. Well, when you look at those films now and you look at some of the riding in Alaska, now it's, it is mental. Like, oh. and it, like it properly stands up. This, this guy, he, he made the boards in his... Tell, we, we, he said he wanted to do an interview with him. He said, I'll meet us at this lay-by somewhere, lay-by 43 in Valdez. And we're like, okay. At nine o'clock, pitch black. Oh, there's, there's, there's stars out. Uh, so we're, we're there in the car, and there's like nothing there. It's like this guy winding us up. So we're out of the car, just thinking, you know, where is it? It's just forest. And all of a sudden, you hear this buzzing noise, and this little light comes out of the forest on Johnny on his on his sled right. with a trailer. He said, "Jump on." I'm like, okay, where are we going, Johnny? He's like, that's no, fine. Jump on this sled. Ten minutes into the forest in the, in the middle of Alaska. Uh, and we come uh, greeted by six massive Rottweilers. <laughs> right. I'm like, you know, I'm, uh, at the time I wasn't really a dog person. It's like, oh, they're puppies, really. They're not puppies. Yeah. They're like these huge things that are going to gouge out the throat. <laughs> and he said, oh, they're, they're fine. And he, him and his dad had built what essentially was a glorified dog kennel. Right. That he lived in. <laughs> with these six Rottweilers. Uh, and it's two metre... Yeah, and, and and he made all these and these boards and and I was like, Johnny, there's there's is that gun loaded? <laughs> and he's like, oh, guns, you like guns, Phil? I'm like, well, you know, I don't really see many guns, yeah. Johnny. And he's starting pulling out these drawers. He's got all these. It's like an armory. Yeah. And he's saying, I'm like, I'm not being funny. You know, what's what's the deal? Yeah, he's yeah. Like, it's the bears. Right. He's like, you can't. That's why he's got the Rottweilers. Yeah. Because you can't go anywhere around where he lives because he'll get eaten by a bear. So he's got all these rock virus <laughs> and all these guns just yeah. in case. And Long I, way from Catford. And, and I said, well, yeah, I said why, you know, <laughs> why, why are you living out in, in Alaska in the wild? He goes, I hate crossing a line. It's like a bad day in the snow is when he has to cross someone else's track. Right. You know, because he's up there all day uh, riding, riding power. What was he called? Fuck, what are you jo- doing? Johnny something or other. Jesus. Yeah, he used to wear this one-piece chromophobia. Right. Uh outfit and uh, he was he was one of the raddest dudes yeah like proper oh, i mean oh. that is that is a great like snowboarding still it's still for those characters i was in uh god uh squaw this year yeah. and there was yeah there was like because those guys now are in the 60s and, and early 70s really aren't they still shredding still going yeah and there was these guys in squaw that were like like amazing snowboarders like in the but like riding around like stetsons and and, and that's you the know. thing you know when people talk about oh you know oh, the olympics is ruining snowboarding you know, these guys have got no interest yeah, in don't and, their, and their scene is 100 percent core yeah 100 real and doing you know making snowboarding exactly what they want it to be yeah you know and you gotta you gotta applaud and celebrate yeah too right uh, for sure so yeah the, the board stupid days gave me yeah. Some incredible moments. Uh, riding full pipes with Jake Phelps uh, and Terry Harkinson in Switzerland. You know, until Jake Phelps got kicked out of the the, the production room for pissing on the sofa. Right. I remember. Right. I mean, just, you know, in, incredible moments that we had that I was very lucky enough to to be to be part of. So how long did it run? Was it three? three? Four years. I mean, year two and three were probably the best as far as uh trips and access 
uh, were concerned. We had lots of bands on there, so you know, we went snowboarding with the Prodigy. Yeah. Um, snowboarding with well, we had Attica Blues uh, on the show of Charlie Dark. Yeah, was, yeah. Was, you know, who's been a guest. Yeah. Uh, who does all the Rundem crew? He, you know, that's how I met him. Yeah. Through the show, Misha Paris. Um, you know, a whole host of great musicians, Courtney Pine, um, that that we bought out to the mountains. And for a lot of people, there it was the first time that they'd seen, yeah, you know, Ronnie Size and the Represent Crew. We had them do a live, you know, drum and bass set with a whole orchestra out out in the mountains. And for a lot of these people, they'd never been up a mountain before, yeah, you know, and it was an eye-opener you know hopefully inspirational yeah for them as well which is kind of what i wanted to do to try and give access to this thing that i'd found yeah that was like wow what a, what a gig that is you must have been like did you was it one of them where you could basically go like i think we should go to alaska to you know well to to us to a certain extent you know the 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 production company probably were getting hookups from various different resorts yeah. uh, that would reach out to those guys. So it right, yeah. would, would definitely help with the stories. As a green light for blagging. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it was good. And what it what it did do was uh, because you know, I, was, I was on TV every weekend. Yeah. What it what it did was open another a bunch of other doors. Yeah. For me. So I got a bunch of uh, voiceover work. Uh, for various different brands, for TV adverts. Uh, and then on on the back of that voiceover work, uh, brands at the time, so we're talking about the 90s, I guess, were, were looking at getting into action sports, like skateboarding, yeah. snowboarding, and BMX and surfing. Uh, and I'd be talking to the brand managers when we were doing the voiceovers or whatever. I'm like, you know, there's a, there's might be better ways that you could actually spend your money if you're going to be in this environment if you're going to uh try and uh market your brand around action sports yeah maybe you can think about doing it in this way rather than in the way you're doing it but you know and and make a difference to the community and if you've got the support of the community if you're if you're actually helping the culture grow you'll get support and people aren't gonna you know just go yeah fucking packet of crisps we don't care yeah you know so that gave me you know an introduction to almost kind of agency work uh right so that was how it grew yeah pretty much and and that's a, 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 i guess another a case of shaking shaking trees yeah i mean i have no idea what i'm doing but i thought you know if someone's going to get paid for a job like this might as well be me might as well be me yeah you know that's that's the way i considered it uh, for sure, and off the back of that, I mean, we've done trips together. Yeah, yeah. You know where we went. To, we had the Motorola job. Yeah. Which you know, I'm not. I don't know how that one turned up. That was it. a good one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, New Zealand, Japan. I think we did what? two trips to New Zealand a year, didn't we? Yeah. Um, states. I missed Japan because I broke my shoulder. Right. Um, but Edley was on there. Uh, yeah, it was funny. Hamish. Ed, Hamish. Yeah. yeah. No, Just they were around, good. Gear. I mean, I yeah. learned a lot from those trips because that was when I was. Coming, just finished White Lines starting similar you know after you but similar thing like oh okay there's money to be made there's a career, there's a career you know whatever yeah. there's work to be done working with brands and yeah I learned loads from, from those trips yeah I learned a lot from your ability to handle unruly clients let's say Phil 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, some, I, sometimes, sometimes I struggle with diplomacy, but yeah. really, you know, the client, all the clients want really is to be made to look good. Yeah, you know, they've got to report to somebody else. So if if you can say early days, look, let me make you look good, <laughs> so that you know when you have to stand up in your boardroom meeting or present to the rest of the business, yeah. you've got some good results. You know, no one wants to go, oh, yeah, shit. Yeah. Let's not put it. Because it's in our own interest as well. It's in yeah, their yeah. interest. It's in our interest. We don't want them to say, oh, yeah, we don't want to be involved in skateboarding or snowboarding or whatever. We don't want to do that. Yeah. You want them to come out with a really, you know, out of a good time. Yeah. So, you know, when 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 when, when clients are difficult, it's generally is because they feel a bit out of their depth. Uh, or they, you know, they don't really know what they're doing, or that that you've really fucked up. Yeah. And you know, I, I like to think I'm a bit of a grafter, and uh, I try not to fuck up. You know, I, I I'll put the hours in, definitely. Yeah. Sometimes it does, but I mean, there's always, you know, a bit of uh, disaster management or whatever that you could that you can employ. Yeah. And and see the signs before it gets to a stage where, oh shit. You know, and I guess if you've been in the game for a while, you get to see those signs a bit sooner. Yeah. Well, you're really good at parking your pride as well, which is uh, which is an essential skill. How do you mean by that? Uh, you know, you don't get personally... Well, maybe you do get personally caught up in it, but you don't let that cloud your judgment, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's it's easy to think that it's a dig at yourself. Yeah, but exactly. It, it, but it very, it, it very nev- rarely it, it is. It never is, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, that, and it is, that's a There's a bigger picture. It's a difficult generally. part of human nature to ignore that because I think the pride thing does make you immediately think it's about you. Um, and you, I, I always thought you were really good at that. I always thought you were just quite good at seeing that for what it actually was, you know, which, yeah. is, which is a very, not only in this weird thing that we do, but... In, you know, generally is quite a nice, important well, skill to li- have. Really, life is life is too short, right? And uh, I mean, I've got, you know, I'm sure I'm sure if you speak to my children, they 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 tell me, <laughs> they tell me I could work on it a little bit yeah. more, you know. But life is too short to be too angry uh, with with people, and there's generally uh, a reason why they're behaving in a certain manner, uh, and unless you've done something that's outrageous. It's like, like I say, it's, it's it's very seldom your own fault. There's some, there's gen, there's generally a bigger, bigger picture that you need to be able to uh, to see. So these days, this is what it looks like, a kind of agency work. Agency like. work, yeah. So uh, what have I done recently? I've I've just come back from uh, San Francisco with uh, Dan McGee, who's a great. Uh, skateboard filmmaker he's a good he's a good cameraman and filmmaker anyway he's for those who don't know he's responsible for uh blueprint skateboards uh back in the day and has just well uh earlier on this year brought out a uh a film with kevin parrot a uk skateboard film called cover version yeah i put it in the newsletter yeah it's great yeah it's great you know and it's uh the standard of british skateboarding is uh is is great it's yeah. right, it's right up there yeah definitely you know, so I went over to uh, San Francisco with him, uh, a good friend of mine, a guy called Adam Brinkworth, um, who I've done a number of jobs with. Um, I guess most recently uh, we did uh, a skate bowl in Selfridges. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, yeah. It's like with the Perspex. Perspex, yeah. that's another story. I mean, we, we, we didn't know whether the Perspex 
would work but I really wanted people to be able to see skateboarding from Oxford Street yeah so people would look up and go what on earth is going on yeah. so we had to it was it was untested so we got this Perspex uh, working with a company uh, called 414 build skateboard ramps and we bent it cold tested it heat tested it and was just like look we don't have the time to really mess around with this. We just got to screw it in. Right. Hope hope it works. Hope it doesn't shatter and someone ends up on Oxford Street on their head. There's a bit more to it than that, yeah, to yeah, be yeah. fair. Uh, but it was a little bit of a suck it and see. Yeah. So <clears throat> I've done a number of projects uh, with with Adam Bay sixty six, the revamp a few years ago. I did with with Adam uh, as well, uh, and he is responsible for doing all the shop fits or the design for all the Supreme stores, uh, the, the clothing brands, yep. brand. and uh, Supreme just launched a new store in San Francisco. Uh, so Adam asked me, because we make quite a lot of content, yep. uh, he said, can you go over to the new Supreme store and create a piece of content for me? Uh, so I took Dan over uh, as a DP, um, hooked up with a couple of uh, or a gaffer and a sound recordist um, and a, a grip over in San Francisco shot a load of stuff around the city with uh, Louis Elliott a great uh, young skateboarder and uh, shot some stuff at night in uh, they've got a bowl in the Supreme store I mean that you know they've They've done it fantastic. Yeah. That, that brand have really nailed it, haven't they? People queuing outside yeah. for days to buy a T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. Fair play to them. Yeah, they, they have smashed that. Uh, so that, that that kind of thing. Uh, early on in the year, I went to uh, UTMB. Yeah, you went uh, to Chamonix, didn't you? Yeah, for the uh, Columbia sponsor, this event called UTMB, which was actually quite... Uh, an eye-opener. Yeah, that's quite me. a... From what we've talked about, it's a bit of an epiphany for you, that, right? Really was. I was I was surprised. I've been to a lot of events. I've put on a lot of events over the years. Uh, I've been knocking around various parts of the world. I know Chamonix relatively well. I've only ever been there in winter. Uh, but UTMB, to give it some context, is Ultra Trail Mont Blanc. So it's a, ser- it's a week, and it's a series of trail-running events which range from uh, a, a kid's race around the block to the Blue Ribbon event, which is 171 kilometres race, so just over 100 miles, around the Mont Blanc Massif with a time limit. Yeah. So 10... ten not, th- not for me, Clive. No. <laughs> 10,000 metres of vertical ascent, really. Yeah. Uh, so that's over the, over the height of Everest. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, over 100 miles. Uh, with a like I said, with the time limit, so I think you've got 42 hours of which to complete this. And there's various different aid stations around um, the course. I think the highest elevation is about two nine, right, or something like that. But you're going past glaciers, yeah, yeah. But for the people who are at the tail end of that, bearing in mind, if you get to an aid station and you're a bit late, they're like, you're oh, out. Uh-oh. That is brutal. It is. It's harsh, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot to unpick there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the people who are coming at the end have run through the night twice. Yeah. You know, the winner did it in 22 hours yeah, somehow. I some, mean, some Spanish dude. I mean, and he looked. To be fair, he looked in better shape 
than I do when I try and catch the seven minutes past nine from Tulse Hill. <laughs> it, it was it, honestly it was sickening, outrageous. Yeah. And and what must go through people's minds? I was saying to you yesterday, we'd we'd got up at four o'clock in the morning after the first night of uh, them racing, and we'd hiked probably an hour hike as far as you can go by car then you hike up past a big lake up to a glacier and you just see this stream of of lights coming down it's really quite beautiful uh coming down out of the dark um just as the sun's begin to rise just as there's light before yeah. you see the sun just as it's absolutely beautiful and there's an aid station there and there's a bunch of people with this thousand yards there who have gone through that night with just like a uh, the square or the circle of light yeah that's all they can see just a patch of light in front of them just their footsteps and and and, and nothing else maybe a couple of people you know in front or, or or behind them they stop they see the light come up they they you know they're rejuvenated because there's light at the end of the tunnel quite literally there and then they they, they it comes they get this realization that they've got this whole day and a whole other night to run. Yeah, and it's and it's it's phenomenal. The the start of that event is one of the most emotional experiences that I've sporting experiences that I've ever witnessed, and that was just a spe- as a spectator. Yeah, it was as though they were they were going off to war. They played this Vangelis music from Gladiator. As they go, the people who were starting the race were in tears. Right, I'm not surprised, mate. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be crying if I had to do that. Yeah, but it's really hard to get into the race in the first instance. But you know, something that really stood out for me is, uh, for, first of all, how how amazing it was, and uh, the ability that human beings have to perform such physical feats. But but secondly, and the one that hit home to me was that with with East African runners being the best long-distance runners in the world, why in the thousands and thousands of people that were out in Chamonix, I only saw one black person running? And and it obviously, it, it, it had occurred to me before yeah. that it's a fairly white space, you know, action sports. Sure, yeah. Uh, but, but I guess because of the beauty and the emotions that were that were being generated from this event, I, I really had the kind of, it was like an awakening about why is it? Right. Why is that? Why and is it, that, you know, however many years ago I was presenting a, a, a snowboard show uh, as, a, as, a, as a black presenter, but yet if you look at the snowboard industry now, it hasn't really changed no. that much. Well, we were talking last night, weren't we? We were, I mean, it was, we tried to name... With like how many high profile black surfers can we name how many high profile black snowboarders can we name obviously skateboarding is slightly different but that's a, that's a new thing that's a new thing yeah. and we were literally like three like yeah. you know which is actually incredible yeah like high profile obviously we're talking about um so yeah i mean one thing that's interesting about that though is like you say you've you've worked in this space your whole life mm. and you've always been a minority figure yeah but have you never really considered it? I've, I've always considered it. Always you considered, always have considered it. I've always it. considered it, but it's always something that I've just kind of pushed to the side and I've not really focused on it. Yeah. I've, I've always known that it's it's there. But because I got into snowboarding 
so early and because skateboarding was such a great family for me and and the skateboarding family sees past race sees past age sees past gender and sex you, you know that it's skateboarding was was the thing and snowboarding was the thing and and color was never part of it and it's only really since you know as as i as i get older and i consider things in maybe a slightly less selfish way that i think it's it's not right and and trying to understand the reasons why people of color you know bame really uh don't engage with the outdoor uh and there's several reasons around there and you know i'm just trying to unpick that at the moment which is to bring it right back what why i'm in kendall at the moment to 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 see what the landscape is as far as uh the the visitors see what films are being shown and to ask questions to filmmakers and to brands and to just general public about what their opinion yeah. on it is and what are you finding <clears throat> uh well overwhelmingly people uh realize it's an issue well yeah i mean of course uh but are unable to uh don't have the skill set or the uh insight to be able to do much about it uh which is understandable you know if you've grown up in yorkshire let's say as uh you know a hill walker a mountaineer or whatever uh surrounded by people who look like you and think like you and talk like you it's, it's difficult to reach out in a language uh that a kid from hackney is going to be able to understand yeah and it and it just comes across as a little bit whack yeah really of course um so i think people understand it and and the response i've got is actually really positive yeah people are saying okay yeah we want to do how can how can we help you so brands have done that brands have said look i want you to sit on panels i want you to come in and talk to the rest of the business uh, and, and bear in mind a lot of these outdoor businesses are based out in uh bc or out in oregon or something and yeah. it's, it's a bunch of bunch of white guys yeah generally uh who have grown up in the mountains and give jobs to their mates who've also grown up in the mountains or in the outdoor space and they don't really have the network of people you know some people say well you know it's open to everyone anyone can come here but it's 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 really not it's really not that well, simple. you have a, to outreach and get people yeah so i mean it's a it's a cultural argument obviously isn't it because as you were saying last night it's not really just a question of opportunity is it really it's actually um, engaging on a cultural level for people to think it's for them right there's so many things so if you look at UK for example if you look at uh, if you look at uh, big waves of immigrants or, or you know, look at Windrush yeah you know, so a lot of uh, Caribbean people came over uh, what 40s Fifties, uh, forty-eight, I think, isn't yeah, it? Around about I that might time. be wrong, but I think it's about, yeah, that, yeah. about that time. You know, invited over. Yeah, uh, it's cold. You know, England, London. Yeah, what's going on here? It's freezing here. We've just come from Jamaica. You know, so it's totally alien to them. Uh, they've got to put food on the table. They've got to keep a roof over their heads. 
they're they're going to be around people that they know. So uh, they go to Brixton, they go to Notting Hill, and the various you know various different places around London. So their priorities are yeah, food, uh, get my kid to school, get my kid clothed, keep them out of trouble, you know, keep a roof over our head. They're not thinking about mm, nice weekend. Should take a trip to the Lake District. You know, they're not thinking about that. So that generation grew up and their kids have no experience about enjoying the outdoors. You know, the outdoors for them is the local park, which is still valid, but it's, you know, we're paying taxes for national parks and around the country. So if, if it's, so it's a generational thing. If these kids are growing up and they've had no experience about it, they're not going to take their kids to it. You know, if they've not grown up knowing what the mountains are like, you know, they've earned some money. They could be doctors, uh, lawyers, uh, you know, work in finance or something. So we're not saying that people don't necessarily have money. They can't afford to do it, but they have no experience in it. So, you know, my man's earned, you know, a a big fat bonus. Where's he going to spend his money on? Is he going to spend his money on thousands of pounds worth of equipment to take his family on a a snowboard holiday where he's going to stick out like a sore thumb where they're going to look like they're going to be beginners uh none of the advertising shows people like them in that in that space or is he going to go back to the islands or ibiza and sit by a pool with a cocktail in his hand you know so there's you you have to be able to you know, my my kids are lucky because I've I've had that experience. So I say, you got we got to go snowboarding, we got to go out to the mountains, we've yeah. Got, we've got to go and explore on bikes somewhere because I know it. But you know, if I wasn't put in that position in the first place, I wouldn't know it. And I probably wouldn't take take them there. I mean, I I I, I do jobs, and uh, I've got I've got friends of mine who are cameramen, uh, black guys, and they turn up to a job. I'm like, what the fuck are you wearing? <laughs> You know where we're going? Yeah. You know, and they turn up in a pair of Harachis. I'm like, what? I'm like, it's, it's, we're up a mountain, man. You know, you can't be rocking this stuff. But they don't know. Yeah. You know, why would they know? You know, because they've got no experience and, you know, their, their social group doesn't have experience. So it's, it's not enough to just say, oh, it's there. They can take it if they want. You know, there has to be an outreach. There has to be a kind of education of the benefits of it as well. You know, if... If, if my guy's, you know, wondering whether he should walk through the park on the way home from school in case he's going to get in trouble, the thought of actually going out somewhere into the countryside and uh, and having a walk is, is so alien to them. You know, it just doesn't even register. And the issue that I think is is really more important is that if you don't have more people invested emotionally invested in the outdoor space why do they give a damn whether your icebergs are melting or your glaciers are melting or whether a butterfly that's rare in the countryside is is facing extinction why should they care you know we've got in london 43 percent of the population of london so like 3.3 million people identify as bame that's a huge amount of people. Uh, why should they care about the wider environment if they never go there? Why should they 
pay taxes for uh, national parks if only 1% of the visitors come from their community. You know, so the so it's not just about should they enjoy the space. It's, I mean, it's a bigger social issue, I think, at play here. And I think it's important, not just so that these uh, people can be in, invested emotionally about saving the planet, but also as far as mental health and uh, the, the benefits and the joy that being outside will afford you. And uh, I guess, I mean, it's early days on, on this, and I've met two or three people here who are going to try and help me get there. But it has to come from so many different areas. Yeah. You know, you look at, you open a magazine, I don't know if there's any magazines left, uh, but, you know, you, you look at a, uh, an ad for most of the outdoor brands, whether it be skiing, climbing, snowboarding, cycling, mountain biking, try and find me a person of colour. Yeah. You know, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. So, you know, who are the heroes? Who's the person you're going to stick up on your wall? Who are the role models? Who are the people that you can take into the schools and into the local communities to say, this is a good thing. It's cool. You can be cool and do this. You know, you will have a good time. And look, I will show you how to have a good time. And you can wear this 350 pound jacket, not just in the street, but actually in the environment that it was designed for. And that's the problem. And, and I think the industry has a, a few questions it needs to ask itself about that. You know, you see someone wearing, a, 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 a black person wearing a jacket in an advert, they're not wearing it up a mountain. They're wearing it in front of a graffitied wall. Yeah. And it's probably with a collab by someone else. And they're looking all yo on the, you know, in, in, in the picture. But that's not, ev you know, that's, black people aren't like that everywhere. You know, it's, it's, it's just playing into stereotypes. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. It basically puts it, puts that person in a role, doesn't it? That's very difficult to break out of unless yeah. you've got the determination that you clearly got or you're an outlier like you clearly were, you know, like in, unless you've got that strength of character and that curiosity to do it yourself. But that's like, it, and you know, but immeasurably more difficult than, than when it, you just see it and you think, well, that's for me because I identify those reference points, basically. But the industry needs to play their part. You know, I, I, I spoke to a mountain bike magazine. Uh, I've got into mountain biking, you know, uh, and I love it, you know, very white space again. Yeah. And I dropped the guy an email. Uh, I can't remember which mountain bike magazine it was. They're all great. Um, <laughs> caveat. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, recently, you know, got pretty stoked on this whole mountain bike game. Uh, don't really see many people of colour in there. To be fair to him, he emailed me back within 10 minutes. He said, oh yeah, thanks for the email. Yeah, well, we don't really know anyone. Don't really know any people of colour. Right. Yeah. It's quite a wild thing and, like, and I was like, to say really in the year 2019, isn't and it? And I was like, well, is that because there aren't or is it because you're not looking? You know, are you a journalist? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I know there was a similar um, conversation that happened in uh, Malmo. Pushing Borders is going to bring yeah. that up. Yeah, Sam mentioned it, didn't he? Yeah, that uh, I think it was a... The Skate a, Witches. A panel that Hannah Bailey yeah. was, 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 was uh, chairing. It was the guy from Free Skate, wasn't it? Arthur. Yeah, Arthur he was challenged to us to why there wasn't more women in 
Yeah, and he, I mean, I think he was put in a, he was put on the spot. Yeah. And I think he was put in quite a difficult situation. But um, I think the sentiment was, was, was true. He, I mean, he said, you know, you know, if any women want to be featured, uh, you know, please reach out and uh, and get in contact and we'd and, and love to and we'll hook you up with the right photographer. And I thought, well, that's, that's a bit of a cop out, yeah. really, you know. That's, just, that's your job. Yeah, I mean, if, <laughs> if, you, if your job is to represent or, or at least to, uh, or how, however they position themselves, but my, my understanding is is, that is, to, is to show the landscape, show the scene as it really is. You should go out and look for those stories, you know, and uh, maybe there's some work to be done yeah. on that. But, you know, fair play to him. You know, he... You know, up until very recently, it's been a very male, white, male-dominated sport. And yep. I think there's a lot of changes that are happening. Um, I know you had Sam Maguire on um, a while back, you know, and he's leading yeah. the charge on that with the Skatism magazine. You know, they're addressing those issues. And I think the industry is like, ah, uh, what do we do? Uh, we, we know we should be doing something, but we're not really too sure how to react to it just yet. You know, and there's probably a little bit of knee-jerk stuff going on. And I think the same will probably likely happen in the outdoor world. Uh, I think it will change. It will have to change. Uh, and I think the market will force it to change because you know that if someone jumps on it and gets it right, there's millions of people yeah well who who are gonna buy their stuff those, those figures that you just said about london i mean that's a big number yeah i mean the problem is that 83 percent of uh you know my, minorities live in cities 83 percent you know which is why you don't see people out in 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 the countryside if it's racist in london what must it be like in yeah you know in the countryside so I'm not, I'm not saying for any any moment that yeah, no, I, that the of outside course. is, is yeah. it's like that. But that's the perception of of people who have no experience. Yeah, in there. What do you think of? Because there are like people, you know, well-meaning charities that are trying to introduce the culture into these spaces. What do you think of initiatives like that? I think it's, I think it's great. I, I think uh, those charities. Uh, I'd like to think that they have the right people involved. Um, and and doing it in a way that actually has some substance. Um, I know there's you look at Snow Camp, for example, which I think which I think is great, and they take uh, at risk youth uh, and take them to snow domes and give them a pathway through through snowboarding. Uh, but I think it's 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 an easy trap to fall into to say, um, once again, it's stereotyping. Let's uh, let's take disadvantaged kids from from the hood, give them a taste of a mountain life, and then for a weekend, and then say, "I'll oh, see you later." You know, we'll give them that because those kids are never going to go. They're never going to have the money to go to the mountains again. So there needs to be some kind of you know shift where there's I don't know whether uh, transportation uh, that the government can put in place. So maybe it's like once a week you can get students uh, kids or families get cheap tickets to do something in Epping Forest or, or wherever I'm not I don't know the answers yeah don't know the answers to it but I, I think there needs to be some long-term strategic thinking rather than let's ship them out to 
the mountains for a couple of days and then well, where's the next lot? Yeah. Let's take them. And yeah. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying no, I, camp I understand. Well, I guess what you're talking about is, you know, tokenism. It's ticking boxes. Slash isn't it? white savior kind of. Absolutely, syndrome, isn't it? You know, but I think if it needs more substance, is obviously what you're saying. Absolutely, and I and I think, as I say, you know, when when you've got you know gang violence and you know uh, environmental issues and you know social structures breaking down, yeah, you know, if if you've given someone the opportunity to take a twenty mile hike in the mountains and get to the top of uh, a peak or something like that. The fact that his his mate scuffed his shoes the day before uh, vanishes. You know, it goes into insignificance yeah. because there's there's a bigger world out there. And I think it's the issue is that a lot of a lot of young people, especially in cities, don't have the world view no. that some of the rest of us have and take for granted and take for granted. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and it's. And it is difficult because we've had, you know, decades of these outdoor communities uh, and they're pretty set in their ways. Uh, and I know that the climbing community have done some great outreach uh, and they're fast tracking people so they become leaders uh, in, you know, in climbing you know, and, and there's bursaries to help them do that. But once they've got that certification, they then have to fit into the structure of this old school mountain scene but they're you know the, the kids that have gone through this system aren't from that old school mountain scene they're from a whole different culture where their families are uh, are in the caribbean or they're in india or they're you know come over from america or you know eastern europe or something like that so it's difficult for them to start adhering to decades old structure that have been put in place by six-year-old men from Yorkshire. Yeah. It's very, very difficult. And no one's to blame on that. No one's to blame it because it's difficult on both sides. But there needs to be an understanding, I think, that everyone has to flex yeah. a little bit. And we're, I think we're only really at the beginning of of this journey. Uh, but I met a guy yesterday, a guy called Mohammed, and he uh, does this thing called Mosaic. And he's had, he's just done a church of fellowship, so he's gone over to various different. He's gone over to Canada. He's gone over to various states in America. Spoken to park rangers there to see how they do it in the states, because bizarrely, they're they're years ahead of us over there. Yeah, you know they've got a really good uh, network and community set up. Uh, so melanin base camp, outdoor afros, uh, brothers who climb, and it's only really starting to happen. Right in the UK um, but hopefully there's a there's a, a cycling group called uh, Black Cyclist Network that set up last year in London uh, because most of the cycle clubs in London are, are, are totally white yeah. although black people do cycle they, they feel slightly alienated when they go to these cycle clubs and they've got all these you know rules Yeah. and if you don't obey those rules or you don't know them they're like oh who's, who's this joker yeah so they've set up their own thing, and now they've got like two, three hundred members. Right. You know, in less than a year. Right. So it's been very successful. So, and there is an appetite. Absolutely, an appetite. So, is, has it surprised you how? You, well, let me rephrase it. Is this linked to a new understanding of your own identity and yeah. and you know your own blackness, if you like? Yeah, I think I think probably. Um, I 
I've got two children uh, and my wife's Irish. So her side of the family, you know, it's, it's there. We can go back yeah. to where, she, where she's from and meet all her cousins. It's a straightforward story. Mine is a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Um, we touched on it before, but uh, <clears throat> my wife, and she's always kind of bugged me about it, uh, bought me a DNA test last year maybe sat on it for six months like you spit in a box kind of thing. Why, why did she do that then i'm not sure i mean i because it was probably a, a either can of worms or a pandora's box or, or some, something like that i was like do i she wanted you to engage with it yeah she just said look for heaven's sake you know sort your shit out so she recognized it was something that you needed yeah, to yeah. have answered did i you, think so i think before, she, before you did yeah, I've I've always had I've got lots of unanswered questions, uh, but I'd kind of made I'd kind of come to terms with the fact that they may well stay unanswered. Right, you know, and I'd found surrogate means that allowed me to put those questions in the shadows a sure. little bit. You know, but my my wife. Well, they're the big questions. Who am uh, I? Absolutely. That's but, the biggest question of all, isn't yeah, it? Where uh, do I come from and who am I? Exactly. Yeah. And I'd kind of hidden from that. Yeah. I think. Uh, yeah, buried my head in the sand to it. And say, like, oh yeah, it'll be fine, don't worry about it. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to have done that. Um but or the, she, or the last. Yeah. She recognised it and she said, Oh look, I've I've bought this for you. Just take care of it. Because and she said, rightly so, your children should know. You know, so it's all very well and good you not giving a toss yeah. about it or hiding away from it. But I want my children to know what their heritage is. Fair point. Yeah, you know, she's a smart woman, <laughs> uh, smarter than me. Uh, so I sat on it for six months. She's like, "Have you done it?" Yeah, I was like, "No." She's like, oh, "Whatever." And she just kind of gave me that, you know, look of disdain that that only a, a, a partner can give you to say you're a joker yeah sort yeah. it out yeah get it done so i so i so i did it and i did it kind of on the slide and spat in a this little vial put it in the post and i got this thing back and it was actually it was it was an incredible experience to get it back i mean half of it i knew because you know my mother's scottish and irish parentage uh my father i didn't you know never really known but all of a sudden you know there's this whole west african story story yeah slave trade sure and so i've got so explain how it works so basically it pinpoints where your dna is from <coughs> yeah so geographically I'm, I'm i'm not gonna pretend to know the science sure, behind but it. that's the answer it gives you it, it, there's this fantastic website i'm and, gonna do it and it, you should do yeah. it's, it's, it's fascinating and, and it it says right judging by the other people who have done this yeah this is this is where you're from right and it gives you a likelihood of not only that it tells you who's related to you it's like there's a 90 percent chance that this is your second cousin right no which, which is way. and this is their picture right wow yeah i know it's quite scary um so i can see why you weren't that keen no and i put a fake name in because i didn't you know yeah didn't want didn't want the feds to find out I'm <laughs> <laughs> but um it had this it's so uh, Togo and Benin oh, so I had to I had to look that up well slave states absolutely but I was yeah. like 
West African Benny, slave states. Like Benny, Benny. Yeah, literally heart of the slave trade. Exactly. It's yeah. the port that people came out. Yes, yeah, so your ancestors were slaves. I mean, I mean, I, I kind of knew that. Yeah. yeah well, was, I yeah, mean, but to have it reinforced in that way was, you know, gave me a gave me a story. So your was your dad American? So America. So I don't know my father. Yeah. But yeah, he he was he was American. So uh, you can plot. His yeah. ancestors were shipped to shipped to the across Car- the Atlantic, Caribbean. To the Caribbean. So it shows me a whole load of islands where there's people with similar DNA to me. Yeah, uh, and then it has dots of people with, right where they've then migrated. Yeah, and, so people who are uh, signed up to this. I think it's Ancestry or something like that. Other DNA testing kits are available. I am going to use that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mine's going to be, you are ginger. <laughs> <laughs> well, bizarrely, I, in, in response to this, I gave my wife uh, the same the same kit. And it goes, you're from here. Right. And she looked at it and said, yeah, and that's my well, that's, cousin. That's, that's my first cousin, that's cousin white, Steve. That's the white story, though, isn't it? And this is such a stark, I mean, the violence of your heritage and history compared to the, you know I'm, i don't know anything about your wife's history yeah. and clearly those parts of the world equally have violence in the in the past yeah. but you know it's a very stark illustration of the of the oh. reality isn't it so there's portuguese and uh basque in in my dna yeah which suggests some kind of yeah. relationship yeah yeah whether portuguese ran the slave trade forced or otherwise yeah, exactly. i don't know yeah um so that's in there somewhere. So it can it does tell a story. Yeah. Um, and it tells you a story of Africa yeah. as well, because within uh, that kind of West African slave gateway, there's also traces of uh, migration in Africa from right down into the South. You know, right. Less so um, as, as they've moved up and uh, come out and, sh- and, and shipped off. So it's fascinating. And it really to tell me a story. And to your point yes uh brought me more in touch with my blackness how did that how did it make you feel when you great had it confirmed great. what you probably already suspected but fantastic it did it, yeah you know i i don't really know what i was worried about you know or scared about uh well i guess what it you know if if i'd if i'd opened it up and said oh yeah that's your brother I'd be like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a, that's a whole story. That's a new one. But yeah, it didn't. The closest relative that he could give me that had signed up to this thing was like a fourth cousin or something yeah. like that. I mean, that's that could be anybody. Sure, so I wouldn't necessarily class them as a as a relative. Yeah, um, but it was great, and it brought out you know who who I am as I guess as an individual, but at the same time made me recognise where I fit in in the UK. And, you know, to to that point, you know, what my role potentially could be with this thing that we call outdoor. Yeah. You know, and what I could what I could do to uh, share the joys and benefits of riding down a mountain, cycling through some woods, uh, running through some, I don't know, marshland or something can bring other people. Uh, who, uh, are, who are like me how, and you mentioned earlier that your wife was interested for the kids benefit and how did they react my, my son Quincy loves it he's he's, he's 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 going to school saying yeah Benny no in it 
<laughs> he's owning it. Oh, absolutely owning it. I mean, to be fair, if you put him in a lineup, you wouldn't say West Africa to <laughs> with, with my with my son. You know, he's not he's not your atypical West African looking looking guy, but he's absolutely owning it and loving it. Right. You know, um, my daughter looks more like me yeah physically and you know her features are more like me my son's got more of the kind of irish uh genes sure. uh, from from my from my wife but my son uh loves the fact that he's got uh african roots right you know and wears it as a badge of pride which i was really surprised about i'm sure yeah. He wants to. He, he wants to buy the the football shirt. They don't really have a football shirt that I, I that I can find. Togo's you know? probably the closest, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think you can. I don't think you can get it in JD Sports no. anyway. Uh, but then Nigeria is the is the closest because that that kind of land there is is very tribal. So they didn't really worry about whether it is Togo, Benin, or Nigeria. Yeah, 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 yeah. In those days. Yeah. And things. So yeah, he he loves it. Right. We were going to go out there. Uh, I see. Right. So you've had that conversation yeah, about we, trying to find out more and heading yeah, over. Yeah, we, we were going to try and do it this year, this summer. But the, I think the seasons were off. It wasn't. It wasn't right. So we ended up going. My son finishes GCSE, so we went to Borneo and uh, went diving, scuba diving in Sipadan. Right. To see sharks. Right. Yeah. So amazing. He loved that. Right. So you feel. I'm happy is probably the wrong way of putting it but it's it's more complete perhaps yeah um it's it's given me something that I'm able to 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 pass on potentially it's given me uh more purpose yeah that was the word I was going to use actually I think you seem pretty pretty driven by it yeah that's that's maybe the surprise yeah that it's it's made me think a lot more about it um and it's made me want to do something with it. Yeah, that's you know, what the, I mean. You the, feel, it seems like you you have got a purpose, like yeah. to try and take this un, this new understanding and, mm. and make something positive out of it. Because before, as I said, it's, it was almost a, a selfish thing. I mean, these sports are very selfish, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's see how much rad we. Well, can and have also today. what you were saying earlier about if I want something, I've got to go and get it. Is 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 a pretty individualistic mm. um, life philosophy let's say so that seems like a change uh, well I mean that that's that still exists for sure and I'm still a three, thrill seeker and if I if I want to do something uh, and I think it's going to give me enjoyment I'll probably still do it yeah. I'm still selfish to that degree sure but at the same time I, I think I'm more eager to share that with other people. Yeah, I mean, I've had a, I've had a fair old crack. Yeah, at doing yeah you've things. done all right. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've been to some amazing places. You've got the Craig and, Kelly story. Yeah. Chalk that one up. Yeah, uh, you know, and I've ridden with world champions. You know, and I've been in bars with people who have done things that no other humans have ever achieved and probably won't do for an awful long time. Yeah. Uh, I've had conversations that have made me think about the world in, in, in a different way. Uh, and I think maybe I should be trying to do something that changes other people's lives 
rather than just my own. And is that, are you surprised by that? Uh, I'm, well, am I surprised by it? Have you I, surprised yourself? You know what I mean? You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I have, is the answer to that one, Matt. Uh, I am selfish, I think. Um, I'm an only child, so that gives you a selfish gene anyway. Yeah. Uh, I have been the odd one out a lot, so I've always had to, you know, like I say, fight and go out and get what I've wanted to get. Um, but to be able to want to offer something to somebody else in the way that I'm feeling at the moment, I, I guess, yes, I am surprised. Well, it happens when you get older, doesn't it? Mm. And, and I almost, it sounds like it's taken you to get to this point in, in your life that you were almost ready for it in a way. Uh, yeah, ready for, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've ever been ready for anything. Right. You know, uh, when, we, when we had children, uh, when you're about to drop into something, when you're going to take on a new challenge, I've, I've never been ready for any of those things, but I do it regardless. Yeah. Uh, so, and I honestly think that some of the best things, if you prepare too hard for them, sometimes don't come out the way you think they're going to come out. That's um, true. So sometimes it's just good to go on a journey and maybe go, all right, let's give this a crack and take it as, as it comes. Have, have a, have an end goal yeah. in sight, but be flexible enough to be able to change path where necessary. And that's always been my way of approaching things. Yeah. You know, that this is what I'd like to get. Uh, but that life isn't such that you're always going to be able to get that because chances are you're going to be upset if you if you don't fulfil that. Yeah. And I don't like being upset and I don't like being stressed. So I like to take myself on journeys. Yeah. And be flexible. Yeah. Enough. So there you go. That was me and Phil. And yeah, that one went to some poignant and unexpected places. Eh? I kind of think that was a pretty important conversation, to be honest. I've been very aware of the lack of diversity on the podcast thus far. And uh, it was great to chat to Phil about that very issue. Hope it gives you plenty to mull over, because it certainly did me. So housekeeping corner, and as I rather suspected it might, quite a reaction to the Alex Nost episode out there. And I've got to be honest, not all of it that complimentary to Alex, although... Obviously, the you know, like I said in the last episode, the blue and the red corner was out in force. Um, the consensus seems to be, and I quote from a listener here, when he forgot to be a dick, he was actually quite interesting, which was uh, kind of my take on the whole thing, to be honest. Thanks to everyone who did get in touch with feedback. Like I said, wasn't too sure whether to put it out, but on balance, I think it was a good move. And it's going to happen, isn't it? You know, they can't all be backslapping sessions for an hour and a half. So, yeah. Um, on to more positive things, such as this email I received from listener David McGough in Portland, Oregon, who writes, All right, man, how's it going? Wanted to write to you and let you know a snippet of my personal story and how the pod has inspired me to start riding again. I've been living in Portland for 14 years. Moved here from Telluride on the advice of a friend. Um, after I was struggling with shoulder separation injuries, I had shoulder, uh, so, excuse me, I had surgery even on my left one at that time. Um, and after separating my right one around 15 times, Jesus, I was just fed up. 
I was feeling down the dumps uh, at the beginning of the season in Telluride the day of popping my shoulder out, drinking whiskey. Lamenting the probable loss for season when he recommended I move to Portland to get away from the ski snowboard town environment and avoid possibly drinking myself to death out of sheer boredom. So I did. Two weeks later, I was on the ground to Portland. Been here ever since. Sold all my gear a long time ago. Haven't snowboarded since that fateful day in Telluride. Strange to think now about that because of what snowboarding was to me for so long. I used to ride 80 to 100 days a year. Good effort. Any chance to go out? It was a massive part of my identity and how I related to the world alongside skateboarding. Topics you cover often on the pod. Anyway, this is where you come in. I discovered your podcast nine months ago because of your episode with Jamie Thomas, listening to it while driving up the Oregon coast. Found it completely captivating, something unlike anything I'd ever heard before. So I dove further into episodes, discovered so many with people I'd once looked up to, admired, who inspired me on a daily basis through my collection of magazines and videos. This all led to me looking at my life at 42 and asking what the hell am I doing? Why am I not riding anymore? So I bought a pass to Mount Hood and I'm in the process of gearing back up. Just bought a new board. Can't fucking wait to go shred again. Been watching the vids, discovering new ones and uh, rediscovering a lot of music I'd forgotten about. If you're still reading, then you and your work have had a major impact on my life and I wanted to tell you a bit about my story and give you a huge show of gratitude. Thanks for what you do and the inspiration. Hope to catch you someday. Wow, David, thanks a lot for that. Um, as I often say, always very, very happy to hear from people who listen to the show and who get so much out of it. Must say, I get a few messages like that from listeners and it always really blows me away when people say the podcasters inspired them to start riding again or make changes in their life. So thanks a lot for sharing that and I hope you get absolutely dumped on with snow at Mount Hood this season. Pretty jealous about that. Um, coincidentally by the time this one comes out I'll actually be in Portland Uh, I'll no doubt be posting stories and updates on Instagram over at We Look Sideways if that's your bag or you could just wait until I release the podcast over the next month or so big thanks to my friends at Visit Portland Black Diamond Gosh PR and Hertz for their support on this trip Um, they've been big supporters of the podcast and it's very much appreciated alright that's it for this week see you in Portland nice one (laughs) 